From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Inside Automaker's Jekyll and Hyde approach to emissions rules, the inside scoop on sustainability at Ben & Jerry's, the state of employee engagement, and can healthcare heal its environmental ills? We're just what the doctor ordered this week on 350. It's April 6, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Heather, how's everything in New Jersey? Hello, Joel. It's great here in New Jersey this week. I actually was away, so I just got back last night. Uh, I was in Houston visiting with family, getting a dose of a two-year-old, speaking of prescriptions, right? Um, but catching up with family um, for Easter and um, happy to be home where it snowed on Monday and melted on Tuesday and is now foggy. Foggy, 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 foggy. Um, but it's getting warm. It's spring. The, the, the trees are budding. Yay. My tulips are coming up. The deer are eating them and life is good. <laughs> the circle of life. Um, and, and Houston, what's, uh, you know, what's it like being in the energy capital of the United States? Uh, is, do you get a sense of that when you're, when you're there? Yes, you do. Um, well, for perspective, both my brother and my sister-in-law are involved with the oil and gas industry out there. They are civil engineers. And of course, that is where the infrastructure is. Um, liquid natural gas is, is one of the projects that they're working on. And uh, when, you, when you, you're in that environment, right, you know that that's what the, where the jobs are. And so it was interesting for me to hear their perspective about what's going on, um, what needs to happen um, as far as national and state support for the, for the projects there. And so, yeah, it was nice, one of those one of those all important level sets and reality checks that uh, I highly recommend every journalist getting from time to time. Uh, so aside from talking to them though, it was, uh, in the <laughs> two things happened to me on the way home um, on Tuesday that, that I just want to mention. One was that I spent most of my, my, um, my car ride to the airport discussing um, you know who, he who shall not, who shall not be named. I have, still have trouble saying the president's name, but we, we talked about um, just the importance of open discussion and debate. The, the driver and I had such a great conversation. We were sharing lots of different and diver, you know, diverging points of view, but um, we had a very civil conversation about my environmental beliefs and, and his beliefs and in, in, in the importance of the oil and gas industry. And it was refreshing just because we disagreed, but we didn't yell at each other about it. You know, so that that was wonderful. And then I also got sort of a visual kick in the face, if you will, on the flip side in the airport where I was walking around and I saw this huge banner um, proclaiming the the uh, strategy of Siemens for the oil and gas sector. And I, and of course they're in my inbox all the time with uh, lots of low carbon technologies and so forth. But it just reminded me again of how some of these larger companies, these legacy companies are having to play this balancing act, like walking the fine line between, you know, driving sales of what they 
they rely on for their revenue and then pushing into this future of, of a new technology of innovation and so forth. So, you know, you never think a personal, a personal trip is going to have business meaning, but it sure, it sure did. I, I walked, I walked away from that trip thinking, wow, okay, push, push reset. Well, that's both the blessing and the curse of being in sustainability. You, you see the world a little bit differently and you, uh, things that might seem normal to everyone else uh, all of a sudden have meaning. But you, know, you talk about the, you know, sort of who to thunk part of this uh, and who to thunk that the oil companies would be sort of thinking in some of these new terms and as radically as they are. And, and, and that was really uh, demonstrated this week when Shell puts out it put out its latest um, scenarios they've been doing this for for decades the shell scenarios are one of the best examples of companies looking at into the future and developing different different pathways and, and thinking about how the business uh, succeeds in that and, and the latest one which came out uh, just this week it's a scenario in which by 2070 so what is that uh, almost about 50 years from now uh, we'll be using far less oil uh, as cars become electric and massive carbon storage industry develops and transportation shifts from uh, toward uh, hydrogen, at least according to to their reckoning, and, and it's pretty interesting. I mean, this is uh, the scenario finds the world in a in a net zero emission state by 2070, and it's based on what they call a simple extension of the current efforts whether efficiency mandates or modest carbon taxes or renewable energy supports. Um, but it, it, it's, it's based on the idea that what's going on now is insufficient for the scale of change required. And so they propose uh, a, a scenario where we do take this at the uh, scale, scope, and speed that, that aligns with the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, did I mention this was Shell Oil Company, by the way? So it, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting, um, and there's a lot of controversy about this. I've seen some articles uh, on Grist, for example, and some others that say this is a a radical scenario, but it's also kind of a rosy scenario uh, because it pushes out the big changes for a few decades and basically allows us to continue doing what we're largely what we've been doing for the past few years, although. Uh, you know the auto emissions uh, roll standards standard rollback that uh, came up this week. We'll talk about that in a minute. You know could get in the way of that at least in the United States. But anyway, this was really I just said sort of an interesting um, development that sort of ties in with your Houston uh, family visit. The oil companies are are looking at some pretty interesting scenarios here, but. Um, that's we sort of started to get into the week in review, but let's dive in head first. So, Joel, I'd like to start us off this week with a piece from Danny Kennedy. He is the managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund, aka CalCEF, and also, incidentally, a very good friend of GreenBiz. Um, has has done some wonderful things with us as, as far as event um, coverage goes. And I wanted to start with a piece called, Can the Healthcare Sector Match Big Tech in Going 100% Renewable? So I have actually um, followed many, many, many commitments by Facebook, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, others, you know, and they're they're very 
vocal in the commitments they're making to renewable energy, specifically for their data centers. But this piece um, by Danny, it really makes you think about what industries could be next. And his thesis is that it will be healthcare, in part because, um, you know, number one, it is a huge emitter. So healthcare emissions you know, hospitals, medical clinics, and so forth, um, 10% of all emissions in the United States, which I just, was a mind-boggling number for me. And when you think about healthcare as an industry and, and how important it is in sort of our future as a country, um, it's going to become much bigger, and so it therefore needs to get a handle on it. So um, Danny writes about some, some really good progress, um, specifically with some of the California companies, Kaiser Permanente, and, and I, I think you have some good perspective on them, um, Joel, that you'll share in a moment, but also Dignity, Dignity Health. Um, and so there's a, a good, a good uh, sort of report and analysis uh, on, on many of the California companies and, and organizations and what they're doing. It's called uh, Building a Climate Smart Healthcare System for California, just published by the Bay Area Council Economic Institute. So lots of best practices that, that Danny writes about in this column um, and where, where we need to triage, if you will, the, the, the different um, priorities that the healthcare sector should have in becoming more sustainable. Yeah, this is a, just a, a growing field uh, and, and ripe for change. There are, have been a, a handful of healthcare companies, uh, notably Kaiser Permanente, as you, as you named, uh, uh, based here in Oakland and uh, where I was born <laughs> many, many, many years ago, uh, that, that have really been leaders in this. I mean, a couple of years ago, Kaiser said that by the middle of next decade, 2025, it's going to become carbon net positive by buying enough clean energy and carbon offsets to remove more greenhouse gases from the atmosphere than it emits. It's going to buy all of its food locally from farms and producers that use what it calls sustainable practices. Um, it's going to recycle, reuse, or compost 100% of its non-hazardous waste. I mean, it is a longer list of things. That's real leadership, but it's also still pretty rare in the field. And, and as you said, Danny was uh, challenging the, the healthcare sector to do what the tech sector has done, at least in renewable energy, in committing to 100% renewable. That, that means uh, taking care of all the efficiency opportunities, lighting and uh, health, uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, which is no small thing in, in hospitals where you have uh, uh, lots of things in the air that need to be dealt with. But he gives some great examples of what's possible and, uh, and not just in California. For example, uh, the Gunderson Health System in La Crosse, Wisconsin, became the first energy-independent health system in the United States by offsetting all of its fossil fuel use with locally produced renewable energy. It's a really We've written about that uh, over the past year or two, and um, that's a, another really great example in America's heartland. Uh, but I think this is you know, there's a lot between wastewater, food, and energy. There's just a lot more that can be done. And and what I love about what Danny does, uh, he is, uh, you know, this is a guy who, I think he ran Greenpeace Australia, and he definitely ran the Clean Energy Now campaign for U, uh, Greenpeace US. That's where I met him about uh, 15 years ago. Uh, and then he went on to start uh, Sungevity, one of the pioneering uh, home solar companies, uh, the, uh, but, you know, given his sort of activist radical background, he's actually one of the most pragmatic, business-oriented, 
um, uh, thinkers uh, out there and has really done amazing things at CalCEF in terms of helping uh, accelerate, uh, not just in California, but beyond um, energy innovations. In fact, one of the things he's, he's done well at CalCEF uh, is to, uh, we're getting a little bit away from his story, but I think just to tout Danny's cred is he's, he's been networking, uh, I think it's something like 80 clean tech incubators around the world so they can learn from, from one another and accelerate their respective work. So um, he's a real pioneer and he's uh, helped some other companies become real pioneers. And I think this story is an example of sort of that pioneering spirit of being able to, to uh, look at an industry that needs some kind of change and, um, and, and help them do that. And I have one final thought on this story, and that is that pragmatic point of view that you mentioned, because the most important thing for these healthcare companies to do is to balance the needs of patients with the needs of the environment and the planet. And sometimes they're a little bit, um, they're not necessarily <laughs> in sync. Um, when, when I spoke with Dignity Health earlier this year, they were in the process of um, banning the plastic straws throughout their organization, right? It was a, it sounds very simple, but in, in patient care, it's very difficult to do. So stay tuned for a lot more pragmatic work from the healthcare sector. Well, speaking of a, of a sector that needs to change, um, we had a, a significant development this week at, in the U.S. Uh, politics and, and regulation when the uh, U.S. EPA uh, announced that it was going to uh, start the process of weakening the emissions rules for cars and light trucks that were set forth in the uh, Obama administration uh, for model years 2022 to 2025. So in other words, four, starting in about four years from now, um, Obama announced those, uh, those rules called CAFE standards, or their updates to the CAFE standards, which have been around since, I think, the 70s, uh, back in 2012. And, and it, those are requiring automakers to almost double the average fuel economy of new cars and trucks by the middle of next decade. What's just sort of bizarre about this is that uh, all the major car companies in, in the U.S. and Japan and, and uh, Germany and, and elsewhere are moving at pretty much warp speed, certainly warp speed for an auto company uh, in creating electric, connected, shared, autonomous vehicles, um, and that their world is changing so quickly. I, I talk to people in, in car companies, and I'll ask, you know, could you have imagined a year ago where you'd be now in terms of developing these models and saying, a year ago, about six months ago, and that's simply not how things worked. But at the same time they're doing this, they, these auto companies, a dozen of them through their, their association, the Alliance of Auto Manufacturers, have been lobbying the, the Trump administration to weaken those emission standards. What the heck? Um, and uh, Katie Fehrenbacher wrote a nice piece about the automakers' Jekyll and Hyde approach to, to, to uh, sustainability and emissions. And my what the heck revelation is uh, the fact that, yeah, the U.S. is trying to do this, but China, which is, you know, a huge emerging market for, for vehicles of all sorts, passenger vehicles, buses, etc., so on and so forth, is moving in just the opposite direction. So they're, they're really pushing the, the world, in, in their world, if you will, to, toward um, low carbon, um, zero emission vehicles. And so, uh, you know, and not to mention there's other countries that have, that have 
you know, also proclaim that they're, they're, they're following that same path. So my question is, how do the automakers balance that? I mean, if China is moving that quickly towards zero, why would the why would they be making different technologies for those different markets? I mean, it seems almost like you'd you'd want them all to be sort of speeding towards the same common goal. And so I'm yeah, I'm baffled as to why the the industry would be lobbying for that. Um, it seems to be keeping them in idle, um, you know, or you know, putting the brakes on on progress. Yeah, um, and, and we ran a second piece in addition to Katie's. Um, this one by an, another old friend of ours, Auden Chandler, who's Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company, and, and that may not be the right credential to talk about uh, automakers and climate rollbacks, but he's, he also came out of the Rocky Mountain Institute and has been a real leader in corporate sustainability from his perch over there in Aspen. Um, and he wrote a piece about uh, about the, these uh, the EPA rollbacks and, and why companies are... are are going along with this, auto companies, and he he cites a, an analysis by Ceres, the nonprofit group, that said that the the tougher standards have long term benefits for the industries, market certainty, spurring innovation, uh, making auto U.S. auto manufacturers and suppliers more competitive in global markets. Sort of to your China point, um, and by the way, cleaner air and and all sorts of other things. By the and Ceres, uh, uh, Ford and GM are both members of series that doesn't prove anything but it just it's just it seems to me so odd that these companies are doing this and this is not the first example i mean we've seen throughout the years companies with uh, sort of robust climate programs uh, that were also you know on the other side of the uh, of the company were lobbying to weaken climate rules or at least not and definitely not supporting tougher rules but actually lobbying to we- weaken them and and so this is uh, one of these you know, behind-the-scenes things that the public, frankly, if they knew more about, I think would be, uh, would be pretty unhappy about uh, that the automakers are, in effect, uh, working to uh, make the air dirtier, make our climate commitments uh, weaker, and, uh, and ultimately costing consumers more at the pump. Um, I don't see how that's a winning combination except in the short-term uh, sugar high profits that may result um, by these companies selling more uh, sport utility vehicles and, and light trucks. Um, it's just it just points out some hypocrisy, and you know uh, we have some good friends at several of these companies. Several of them have been uh, speakers and sponsors at our events, and and you know sort of appreciate what they do. But this is certainly troubling. So the final thing I want to bring up, Joel, is a. At me personally, is a piece by our friends at BSR. It's by uh, Michael Rauer, um, and he's an associate director with them. Um, and it's called Why and How to Work with Your Design Team. So it gets to actually some of the, the things we were just talking about is how do you build this imperative, the, the idea that you should be designing not just for innovative um, progress, but for progress that is low carbon, progress that that is not at odds with the aim of making sure that we have a sustainable future. And so he write, writes about how to um, work with design teams, um, how, how you put in place, uh, you know, measurements that, that inspire sustainability and, and, and future, you know, future design 
um, innovations and, and how you get those, those creatives, if you will, involved in, at the, at the design, at, again, the prototyping, the, the thought, the, um, the shaping phase, getting them to integrate these things into their, their overall um, design process from the beginning. So that for me is, is another reminder of, you know, how you, how you get, get your product teams thinking differently. Um, for example, you know, how do you make sure that the, the human rights committee is reviewing, <laughs> re reviewing a, um, a, a product or some, uh, you know, or even a, a manufacturing uh, production, if you will, um, investment for, for these things. So Intel has done that. They are um, using reviews for its global human rights principles as part of new product designs as part of the process, the research and development process. So that's that's a story that popped into my head um, as I was keeping my eyes on the site this week. I believe you have a, a similar piece that you wanted to tout. Well, yeah, but before we do, I mean, I think this is a really interesting topic that's going to get even more interesting as we move uh, towards a, a circular economy, which which is really so much about design. Uh, our good friend Bill McDonough is fond of saying that design is the first signal of human intention, um, that as we uh, promote a positive vision of the future, that uh, you know, we face a, a lot of design challenges. And, um, and as we look at, at products and services that, that are going to sort of be closed loop more so than ever, um, there's huge design issues there. For example, we will be seeing, at least in pilot projects and in a few places, a few big companies, I can't name them yet, that are going to be bringing back, in effect, the, the, the notion of reusable containers. So you might have, let's say, a shampoo that has a container that gets to be reused 100 times, and they're gonna, there'll be a subscription model with consumers and maybe a deposit on the reusable container. Um, I'm not, it's, it's unclear exactly how this is gonna unfold very different models than going down to CVS and buying a you know, bottle of head and shoulders or whatever it is. Um, and these are all huge design challenges, design not just of the package and the products and the materials selection, but design of the business model and the interaction and how you get stuff back and what happens when it comes back and the designs of, of processes and designs of new business models. And so I think that this, the design pieces of, of sustainability is... Uh, a huge and necessary component that's often under touted by by those of us in the field. And you mentioned this other piece, Heather, the, that also came up this week from Janet Ginsburg, who's uh, is a, a longtime designer and communications uh, expert in sustainability. And she put out a challenge to creatives, the business case for rebranding efficiency. And we've been talking about this for a long time, that efficiency is such an, an uninspirational, unaspirational word. Um, and talking about making things more efficient is, is just hard. And, it, and, and, and it's hard to get motivated beyond that. Although there's, we've, we have done amazing things, including in the aforementioned car industry, but appliances and almost anything that uses energy is much more efficient now. But as we... Uh, try to ramp up our efforts to address Paris and other commitments that efficiency is going to have even playing more of a role. And and she talks, she writes about the fact that there's still a disconnect about what efficiency means and its critical role in creating a clean, prosperous future. 
and that that disconnect could very well cost us that future. Um, and so as creatives, she writes, you are experts at shaping and packaging ideas so they can be easily understood by a broad range of audiences, and that that's a key piece of the puzzle. So uh, I encourage you to, to take a look at, at, at Janet Ginsburg's piece. There's some good comments uh, taking shape uh, at the bottom of it, um, and feel free to weigh in. So speaking of pieces that have generated a lot of comment this week, uh, Joel, the, you did a great inter- interview, exit interview, if you will, um, with Andrea Ash of Ben & Jerry's. I guess she is retiring after being at the company for, what, since 1992, that's 26 years. She uh, has been in charge of their natural resources strategy, right, um, for for that time. So I'm just curious... Joel, I mean, what, what were the, the, the takeaways from that interview? I mean, you've probably known her a long time. What, what were some of the things that really stood out for you? Yeah, I, I have known Andrea pretty much since she arrived at Ben & Jerry's or maybe just a little bit out of the, after that in the early 90s. So Exit Interview is an occasional series that I've been doing for a number of years. We're doing interviews, uh, profiling and, and interviewing uh, veteran sustainability executives as they leave their jobs and companies. Sort of what, it's, it's not so much as about what do they do, but what do they learn? And so the latest victim here is Andrea, who stepped down um, this week, maybe even today is her last day uh, at Ben & Jerry's. I think most people know that Ben & Jerry's, aside from being a a hip brand, has also been a leader in in sustainability for a long, long time. I mean, going back to the 80s when they introduced Rainforest Crunch, which was as much actually about social, doing good on the social side for the uh, indigenous people in the rainforest as it was about the rainforest themselves. So it's been just a really interesting ride to watch them evolve and stumble from time to time. You know, they have uh, some significant impacts, not the least of which is a lot of butter fat and things that go into their waste stream. Although I know that there were some cows in Vermont that were the beneficiary, or pigs, I think, actually, the beneficiary of that. I remember once being told about the some butter fat coming out of Cherry Garcia that were just going to a hog farm, and they, they named them the Grateful Pigs. Uh, but... Um, <laughs> It's just, it's sort of an interesting uh, company to watch. And so, on the occasion of her departure, after, as you said, a little over a quarter century, I did an interview with Andrea Ash. And um, one of the things I asked her was to take a look what was Ben and Jerry's like back in 1992. And here's what she had to say It was really about still being that funky, chunky, new way of working type of business. And um, they, they, everybody was completely passionate about what we did. We were really outspoken around social issues, writing an annual report that people just didn't do then. You didn't have a mission statement that you publicized. If you did have one, you didn't um, publish your, the good, the bad, and the ugly in your annual report, which is what we did. So there was no fear. There, we just did what we felt was right as a business. We... Um, gave away a lot of ice cream. We had our One World, One Heart festivals. We just kind of opened our arms wide and pulled anybody who would want to join us on this journey around our social mission, our beginning of our environmental program, but really about us as an ice cream company with the notion that 
there was caring capitalism. You could give back to your community. And the vehicle for doing that was ice cream. When did that three-part mission statement come into being? Was that before or after you arrived? That was before. It was written in the late 80s. And um, and I said I joined in 1992, and then shortly after that, we really underpinned our mission statement with our leading with progressive values across our business. Which, while the mission statement is certainly giving us the guidepost, our product, economic and social mission, with statements about what we intend to do, very aspirational. The leading with progressive value statement articulated much more specifically what our intentions were, how we were going to do it, what we were going to do. And both those documents are very much a part of our business today. So they have had longevity and been very relative to how we, how we lead our business. We are a three-part mission-driven business. The, the first environmental issue that I can recall was Rainforest Crunch, which I believe was the late 80s. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then later, no, ten years later, was, was one sweet whirl with Dave Matthews. Uh, but talk about Rainforest Crunch and sort of the how that fit into, you know, how that came about in terms of the environmental mission got you know discovered. I guess that was sort of the first significant initiative. Um, what was the mindset in terms of of how uh, Ben and Jerry's wanted to show up in the world environmentally? So it's, it's interesting, Joel. There's almost, there's kind of two different things going on there. There's about the social component of the purchasing of the Rainforest Crunch that had very much an environmental component to it. So a lot of the Rainforest Crunch um, kind of sourcing process or sourcing project and involvement was actually before I got to the company, but um, it was really about using the power of our business to purchase an ingredient that had a, a, a another attribute to it other than just the nuts. It had a purpose to it, and that was about rainforest, raising the, the awareness around the rainforest, around sourcing ingredients that would have a benefit to the communities in which those nuts were harvested. So it was about values-led sourcing, purchasing ingredients based on the values of our business from a social point of view, as well as an environmental point of view. The company has always been a social mission-led business, first and foremost. And integrated in that, you just can't happen, you can't, just cannot have happen an environmental component to it as well. But with my job being initiated and the work that I did, really took down, or took, went down another path as well about establishing programs, whether it was, and perhaps you recall, the unbleached paperboard, and that was at the time when EPA was looking at the um, the bleaching requirements for paperboard, and our position was that we really need to be using totally chlorine-free bleaching technology. So we went to the brown paperboard, and that was our a, a big step for us to look at how we could change an industry. And while we made that change, nobody followed suit, and we had to make some changes to accommodate being part of a um, kind of a different pathway to support um, better bleaching whitening techniques. But those are some of the projects that I would initiate that, again, spoke to very 
strongly rooted in our business, the belief that we could make change as a business by using the power of our business to affect change, which is what we did for, as I said, as an example, with our unbleached paperboard. So those are some of the projects that I brought into into the fold. How did you choose what to take on? Because there are so many issues around uh, cows and, and, and dairy farming to packaging and paper to refrigeration to um, you know, leveraging the brand for, for cause awareness. Um, how did you decide what the next big issue you wanted that the company should take on would be? <laughs> well, um, it, it, I, it really reflects back on just the complete open book I had to really do whatever I felt was important to the business. Being a department of one and nobody really having the background that I have, it really let me choose what I felt was important to the business. I'd say there are a few very specific areas that we had to pay attention to that I got heavily involved in. One was packaging, the second was refrigeration, and the third is, as an agriculture company, looking at dairy farming. And not in any particular order of priority, but I have certainly spent a lot of time in all of those developed a lot of, of insight, I would say expertise and capabilities that have been just fascinating for me to learn along the way, but also guide the company in a way that they're very receptive to, to really address these important issues. And of course, Ben & Jerry's was purchased by Unilever in 2000. And that potentially could have had a very negative effect, or in fact, a very positive effect. And I'd say the question I get asked probably most frequently. So what's it like now being owned by Unilever? And I said, oh, you mean for the past 18 years? Um, I would not have stayed with the company if my values would have been compromised. So it's really been, um, I'd have to say, a lot of opportunities presented to me by being a part of Unilever. It's never without its challenges, of course, working for a large multinational. But having Paul Pullman at the helm of Unilever has been incredibly beneficial and for us here at Ben & Jerry's having Yostein Solheim as our CEO have provided great leadership. Yeah, so one of the things that I appreciated reading about most was the the you know, the cultural shift if you will or the and and the things that stayed the same and the things that changed when when Ben & Jerry's was bought by Unilever. So I really appreciated that perspective um because a lot of times you'll see a a, a smaller innovative brand get um, subsumed, and, and this has not been the case. Um, so many good ideas have been shared throughout the company. And uh, so, Joel, just what are your fi final thoughts on on um, the interview? Any any key takeaway? Well, I think you know Andrea said it. Uh, leadership is everything, and uh, it started off with with Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield themselves uh, way back when, and and they've managed, I think very much to their credit to keep that leadership going, not just uh, with their successors in the company, but as they did uh, become part of, uh, of the massive Unilever family, uh, their ability to maintain their culture, maintain some of their practices and policies about uh, philanthropy, certainly meant to maintain their their hip vibe and, and, and attract the talent that they do, has not changed. Um, and that became a model for for Stonyfield Farm and uh, Honest Tea and uh, this dozens and dozens of other brands, Toms of Maine, that all got bought up by the likes of Coca-Cola or Unilever or, or 
Colgate. They deserve a lot of credit for that, and Andrea has certainly been a key player in all of that. So, Andrea Ash, uh, congratulations on a great, great run, and um, uh, best wishes in whatever happens next. As defined by the U.S. Department of Energy, a zero-energy building is an energy-efficient building where the actual annual delivered energy is less than or equal to the on-site renewable exported energy. In other words, it's a structure that produces at least as much power as it uses. And according to a new report by the New Buildings Institute, there are nearly 500 verified and emerging zero-energy buildings across the United States and Canada. That is a massive 700% increase since the organization began tracking projects in 2012. Private sector investments represent at least half of those buildings. Uh, most of the list is still classified as emerging. That is to say, the goal is zero energy, but it hasn't been verified yet with at least one year of performance. To speak with us about some of the things that these projects have in common, GreenBiz 350 is joined today by Ralph Danola, the CEO of New Buildings Institute, and Tony Hans, National Director of Sustainable Projects for CMTA Engineers. So, you know, they say that location is everything or almost everything when it comes to real estate. So what can you tell us about where these buildings are cropping up? In other words, the regions. Um, and are these particular regions active because of the way the weather is there? Or are there re regulations in place that are helping encourage zero energy construction? So, you know, I'll I'll throw that that one to both of you. Sure, I'd be happy to start. Um, so, you know, the evidence from the database and, and the uh, research that we've been doing, uh, the analysis in our latest status update really shows that the regional emphasis or the regional growth that we see in the and the majority of projects are showing up in a, in a few key regions. Uh, certainly, California, um, with concentrations in the Bay Area and Southern California, the Pacific Northwest. And then the Northeast in the United States, but we we see these projects in almost every state in the country, and uh, and also in uh, all the provinces of Canada as well. So we we do see a you know wide distribution, but definitely pockets of concentrated activity uh, where we see many of these projects happening. Tony, I don't know exactly where you are, but what's your um, what's your lens on this one? Two things here. I think that zero energy projects are are hard to achieve because it's a it's a performance goal, and it takes a long time for a building to be designed, constructed, and to ha to have that year of energy consumption and production to actually show that it's zero energy. And there's not that many because it's because it's difficult. It's difficult to get through all the roadblocks to get to where you actually achieved that zero energy production. There's a lot of projects that talk about, and there are projects and they talk about going that direction. But when you really get down to it, there's not a lot that actually achieved it. And so it's sort of one of the things that makes it great. Now, the locations, you know, really, I think that uh, it's much easier to overcome the location and the climate than it is to overcome all of the other roadblocks. So location is probably the easiest things. And that's one of the reasons we've been, you know, we've done zero energy projects in Michigan, in Texas, in um, D.C. And, and Kentucky out to Oregon. Um, so you can often overcome um, some of the simple climate challenges. Uh, you know, that's maybe the easiest one to overcome. I think a lot of the other roadblocks are the harder pieces. 
Yeah, and I would I would just add to that. I think I, I would agree that uh, climate is not as much a factor as the supportive policies and whether those policies are in place or not. So, uh, you know, between legislation, executive orders, um, and then uh, utility programs, uh, rate design and uh, utility rates, uh, the availability of uh, uh, net energy uh, metering uh, in, in the utility territory. So all of those policies and, um, and programs uh, are, are often what is behind the achievement of these projects. And, and, and I think looking at the regions where you see the proliferation of zero energy buildings, you see basically decades of environmental leadership uh, that has led to this. So I, I'd say that, you know, there's, that this movement is founded in an environmental movement that, that really has been going on for a long time in those regions in the country. What design principles do zero energy buildings have in common? You know, it's a, it's a great question. I think Ralph was spot on about some of the drivers as to what creates a zero energy building. But I don't know in all of the, in all of the zero energy buildings that we've done, um, I think that none of them look the same. I think they all have their, their different approach of, to what that building is trying to achieve. So I would look at one of the largest drivers in a zero energy building and for a zero energy building to be successful is, is the why of the building. And often in the design profession, if you get to the why of the building, then if your goal, whatever you're trying to achieve, is if it supports the why of the building, then it becomes prioritized as, um, as a goal that needs to be achieved to make the building successful. And so people will often ask, you know, why are there so many zero energy schools? Oh, it's because they, they're, they're closed in the summer and it makes it really easy and all that, which isn't true. Um, schools have traditionally a very high energy consumption and, um, and many schools today are brand new and still don't perform very well. I think the driver on why there are so many schools is because zero energy can be leveraged as to really incentivize the staff, the students, to uh, and energize them about uh, the STEM curriculum and the teaching and what can be achieved. Um, the majority of our buildings don't start out as zero energy buildings. The majority of our zero energy buildings don't start out that way. We really look at the why of the building and see if that zero energy fits that why and can increase the potential to, for the project to be successful. You know some of the principles or some of the some of the strategies that we see that are consistent. Uh, one is setting the goal of zero energy at the outset is is important. And as Tony said, some come to it through the process, right? So projects that might have been looking to achieve lead gold or lead platinum, and then someone you know a champion comes along and says, "Wait a second, couldn't this be zero energy?" Um, but the earlier, the better, right? So if, if it's set as a goal at the outset, it's more likely to be achieved. Also, you know, a, a principle we see is, is um, the, the loading order, or the, the order in which you do things. So, so uh, energy conservation and energy efficiency, um, and, then, and then adding the renewables. So we, we know that the evidence is, is that these buildings reduce energy use by an average of 60% compared to their um, their counterparts, the code buildings that are being built today. Um, so low energy is, is key. 
Um, so the, the principle there is is the loading order. And what we've, we've, we've been seeing, and I think this is an evolution, I'd like to hear Tony's take on this too, is what we've now, we've gone from this energy loading order to thinking about the complementary elements of zero energy buildings. And so it's, it's energy efficiency and optimization of energy, and then adding renewables, and then also thinking about storage and grid harmonization. And I think this third piece, the energy storage and grid harmonization, is something that's new but but rapidly emerging uh, where utilities and regulators are trying to see how buildings can be used to really help to um, to you know with with um, lo- you know loads on the power system uh, to, uh, to, to deal with peak demands and, and, uh, you know, um, uh, helping to integrate the renewables that we're seeing come online so rapidly. So, so I think those, those kind of core principles are, are key, uh, to these projects. All right. So one final question for the two of you, what'll it take to make these the rule rather than the exception? You know, I think one of the things we know for sure is that we can, we can drive, the growth and scaling of these buildings through supportive policies and programs. So um, we've been working on advancing codes and energy codes are, are really the most effective way to deliver savings and, and carbon emissions reductions. So in places like California, in the Northwest and in the Northeast, we're seeing the use of, you know, certainly increasing the base codes, but also using stretch and reach codes as a way to prime the market for these advances. And then we're also seeing the you know, goals by governors and by mayors that are really pushing and driving this. And so we're, we're seeing uh, this lead leadership by example of the public sector, um, states and, and cities uh, where they're, they're building or, or renovating their own buildings and their schools to be zero energy. Um, so, I, you know, it starts, I think, with, with, policy and code leadership. Um, and then there's the market side of things. And so the, the market side of things, and I think Tony plays in this space where this is really a demonstration of leadership by design professionals, uh, builders, and, and building operators and facility managers. And so it's, it's basically the, the differentiation of your capabilities um, and, and the ability to do this. So we need to have more people like Tony uh, design professionals who can deliver these kinds of projects. So we need to have more uh, education and training. We need workforce development, uh, and we need to really move the the um, the whole profession of the building industry forward to say this is the new norm. Um, the two things that I'm most excited about where zero energy is going is when that financial incentive is gone. And so we have a new zero energy building that is coming to fruition because of a power purchase agreement which is um, not, you know, that the owner is not paying up front and there's zero investment from the owner side, but yet the energy efficient design is there. And now we're bringing on power purchase agreement investors to take advantage of the tax incentive and yet provide um, the zero energy solution on buildings. And then secondly, um, our company is also a guaranteed energy performance contracting company. And so we are creating our first zero energy building without any incentive, I mean, without any um, um, upfront money from the owner. And so the, uh, it's a school district, and we're leveraging future energy savings uh, and creating a project where we not only take an existing project and renovate it to be very energy efficient, 
but we also provide the solar to make it a zero energy building. And so an owner that doesn't have any funding, doesn't have the budget to create, to not only renovate their building or to make it zero energy and to have that where you can make it a, um, a very low energy consuming building through a renovation and make it zero energy on top of it is, uh, I think there's a future of zero energy buildings there. The reason we, we at NBI were calling it getting to zero is because we know that it's really, it's, it's, it's a path, it's a journey. Um, not everyone can get to zero today, but we, we know that, that, um, so, you know, some projects can immediately strive and achieve, you know, strive for and achieve zero energy, but others it's, it's a process and it's, and they're on a path. And so we believe that zero energy ready is a, is a great step and, and certainly making all new buildings and <clears throat> existing building retrofits zero energy ready is an essential step. Um, so we know that we can, we can achieve 40, 50, 60% energy savings. And those buildings are really ready to get to zero. And, and quite often I've been looking at these projects now and just thinking of them as these are high performance buildings that are getting renewable energy systems that get them to zero. So, so it's not that, you know, yes, it's hard to do, but every project could at least strive for it because we know that ultimately this is where they're, they're headed. And so you want to set your project up for success by, by getting it ready to get to zero. Employee engagement is one of those perennial topics for almost any sustainability executive. How do you educate, inspire, and activate a company's workforce to embrace the kinds of strategies and initiatives companies need to meet their sustainability goals and objectives? A new report from WeSpire, an employee engagement platform that helps companies design, deliver, and measure the benefits of sustainability programs, looks into how and how well companies are doing with employee engagement on sustainability. And here to talk about the report, titled The State of Employee Engagement 2018, is WeSpire's founder and CEO, Susan Hunt-Stevens, joining me from Boston. Hey, Susan. Hi, Joel. How are you today? Doing great, thanks. So what did you set out to do in this report? Well, so this report has actually been happening for six years. It was started originally by Brighter Planet to look at the state of employee engagement and sustainability and CSR. And when their business model changed, we took over, and this is the sixth report that's been released. And what we are trying to look at broadly from the employee perspective is what engagement programs are their companies offering? How does the sustainability program compare in popularity to other programs like well-being, diversity, and inclusion? And what are the benefits, at least from an employee perspective, of offering these kinds of engagement programs. And then we try to get a proxy for the impact that each of the different kinds of programs has on certain outcomes, like the employee's likelihood to recommend the company or the perception of the company as a force for good in this world, things like that. So how do most companies feel about their employers' sustainability programs and commitments? Are there any conclusions you can draw? Well, I think there's several conclusions. Uh, First is that very few companies, at least from the employee's perspective, even have an employee engagement strategy broadly. Only 36% of employees say that their company even has a a coherent strategy for engaging them. And even when they do have a strategy, nearly half of employees think it could be improved. So I think companies still are 
really trying to figure out employee engagement broadly. And I think we would say that's true in sustainability as well, and perhaps more so in sustainability because it's a relatively new area. Um, many companies have been trying to engage employees, for example, in well-being programs for a long period of time. I think the thing that's interesting to us and frankly a little concerning is that uh, the trends over the last few years of sustainability programs is actually it's been decreasing a little bit. So it dropped five percentage points this year from about 23% of all companies offering programs to about 17% now. Now it's bigger um, and more popular with larger companies. So uh, 28% of companies with more than 10,000 employees are offering sustainability programs. But given the business benefits that have been proven and shown that sustainability um, has on HR outcomes in particular, I think that the trend is is not going in a direction that most businesses should be looking at. And why do you think that is? Is it just that companies are they don't seem less interested in in sustainability, or they're uh, and they don't seem less interested in employee engagement? So what's going on? So I think there's two things that are going on. I think first and foremost, uh, companies are struggling with a lot of initiatives and how to clearly communicate and prioritize um, the initiatives and the importance of the initiatives employees. And I'll give you an example from some other research that we've done in companies where that company had an employee engagement program in sustainability but very few employees had participated in it. So when we surveyed and asked why people weren't participating in the sustainability program, 71% said they didn't even know about it. And so I think sustainability is, has struggled and is struggling to get to the, the same level of, of support, frankly, from executive and leadership teams as other strategies like safety or a customer success strategy and things like that. And so I think then what happens is when you don't have that awareness among employees and you don't have that same level of executive support, the people who are running these sustainability programs don't end up getting the, their participation, the interest and, and get demoralized. We, we, um, we call it the skeletons in the employee engagement closet. And so I think when uh, our advice to sustainability executives and leaders when they're going out to establish a sustainability program is to ensure that they have a, a model. Um, and if there's a model in another area like safety or well-being or um, that they're going to follow, to do the same in sustainability, to, to match the, the emphasis that it's getting in communications, to match the touch points that these other programs are going out and to um, ensure that you are measuring the business benefits, because I think a lot of people are trying things but aren't making the business case for it. And, and then if it's, um, they're not getting the, the comm support and the executive support, they, they perceive it as having failed when, in fact, 70% plus of employees didn't even know it was there. Hmm. Now, one of the things that we hear about has become, in fact, axiomatic to say that millennials want to work for socially and environmentally engaged companies. Uh, I'm wondering what you're seeing about the role of millennials in employee engagement and sustainability in your research. Well, it's certainly critical, uh, you know, and we are, admire others who've done great research in this area, like Cone, who saw that 51% of people say they will not work for a company that does not have strong environmental commitments. 
we see that it really is it's millennials for sure, but it's, it's people of all ages. 86% of people say they want to work for a company that's making a positive impact in this world. And only 66% of people believe their company is actually doing that. And what's really interesting is there's an even bigger gap between those companies who have sustainability programs and those who don't. In our research, um, employees that worked at a company that had a sustainability program, 76% said that they believe their company is making a positive impact in this world. And only 62% of those that didn't have sustainability programs. And that's a bigger gap and for almost any other type of initiative, even other positive impact initiatives like volunteering and diversity and things like that. So sustainability seems to have a very, very um, strong impact on that perception um, of your employer as, as really the kind of company that aligns with your values and that you want to um, be working in. Well, as always, sustainability is an underutilized resource, and uh, it sounds like there's a lot we can learn from your report to uh, help change that. Susan Hunt-Stevens is WeSpire founder and CEO, joining me from Boston. Thanks, Susan. Oh, thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find links to the uh, stories and organizations, events and things we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, take a look at the link for our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your comments and ideas. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>